Hey, it's Zach here, and super quick before we dive into the show. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you have subscribed to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter, because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'll even send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter. All right, on to today's episode. My name is Zach Arnold, and I'm a former Hollywood film and television editor turned career strategist and the creator of Optimize Yourself, where I help artists, creatives, and storytellers just like you design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. In a nutshell, I'm Tim Ferriss meets Ted Lasso, minus the mustache, because I am obsessed with both learning everything I can about optimizing human potential while also inspiring you to realize yours. If you are ready to step outside your comfort zone, let's dive right in and unlock the optimized version of you. Hello, and welcome to the Optimize Yourself podcast, where I share honest and candid conversations with best-selling authors, world-class athletes, Hollywood legends, elite experts in a variety of fields, as well as everyday people that are achieving extraordinary things. It means the world to me that with all the podcast choices out there, you have chosen to invest your valuable time, energy, and attention with me. Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist where I'm gonna send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. As a freelancer or entrepreneur, it is so easy to get caught up in the grind, endlessly pursuing what others define as success. But one of the overlooked effects of doing so is often loneliness, and that doesn't matter whether you are at the bottom or you are at the very top of the ladder. When I first started my career in Hollywood, I was so focused on perfecting my craft and building a resume of credits that I literally had no social life outside of work for years. Having friends, hobbies, and doing things outside the job, it simply wasn't a priority for me until I realized how detrimental it was for my work to become my identity, not only to my physical and my mental health, but also to my creativity and my overall well-being. Well, my guest today, Michael Bauman, knows all too well the pain of loneliness as a creative professional and an entrepreneur. Michael is the CEO of Success Engineering, and he is a Tony Robbins certified coach who, after failing at starting his own personal training business and having absolutely no money to support his wife and his soon-to-be child, uncovered and untangled his own feelings of loneliness and his feeling of not being enough so that he could pursue a more fulfilling version of his goals. He now uses his own experiences of failure, loneliness, and hitting rock bottom, which you're going to hear all about in our interview, to help others redefine their own meaning of success in their lives. If you struggle with defining what success really means to you, and you are often so consumed by your work and running on the empty hamster wheel chasing success that you are constantly feeling lonely or burned out, this candid conversation is a must listen. All right, without further ado, my conversation with coach, entrepreneur, and the host of the Success Engineering Podcast, Michael Bauman. To access the show notes for this episode with all the bonus links and resources discussed today, as well as to subscribe, leave a review, and more, simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash episode 175. 
I'm here today with Michael Bauman, who's an entrepreneur loneliness coach who helps entrepreneurs feel like they are enough and they know that they are not alone. He's also the host of the Success Engineering Podcast, where he interviews everybody from Broadway directors and actors to multimillionaire CEOs to neuroscientists to editors of Cobra Kai. Just going to put that in there. Shameless plug. Anybody want to look that one up? Um, and you work on uncovering how people define success and how they create it in their own lives, which is in perfect alignment with all the stuff that I love to talk about on this show. So, Michael, it's been a long time coming. I was on your show a few months ago. I promised to have you on in return. My calendar was having other ideas, but here we are. Really, really happy to finally have you on the microphone. Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks for making the time. I know it's crazy for you. So, where I I want to start is going to be an interesting place. We're not going to start at the beginning. It might be the beginning of a certain story, but it's not the origin story per se. But I don't get a lot of fellow podcasters on the show. Everybody nowadays seems to have a podcast, but I don't have a lot of podcasters that have actually done it consistently that have turned it into a business. I know how hard that is. <laughs> Getting one of these things in the can is hard. Getting 100 or 200 in the can, doing it consistently and turning it into a service is near impossible. But what I've learned is that the ones that do it well and they do it the best, there's a reason why they started the podcast. Nobody says, you know, this would be fun and I think it would be an easy way to make money. There's <laughs> always a story where you feel this desire and this urge and you say, I need to do this and I must share these things. So I'm curious – why did you start a podcast? Yeah, I mean, this actually does tie in with with the origin story. So it was kind of, um, you know, my background, I was, I was a personal trainer, I was a nutrition coach. And I, you know, go, oh, I'm gonna, you know, dive into the entrepreneurial, you know, dream, you know, gonna make a lot of money, have a ton of freedom or whatever. So I decided to start my own online personal training nutrition coaching company. And I totally, totally failed at it. Um, my wife, we found out we were pregnant with our first kid two weeks after I quit my job. So my wife isn't working. She's like, has morning sickness, like throwing up every single day. I'm like literally knocking on doors, um, you know, being like, Hey, do you want to, you know, sign up for my personal training thing? You know, of course, everybody's like, no, don't have time for that. So it was, it was like the hardest, darkest period of our life. Like we went through, I mean, just awful, awful time. And kind of as a part of that, like as I'm deconstructing my whole life and I basically at rock bottom, I'm like, well, you know, let's just start reading a bunch of books and maybe I can learn something in this process. So I came upon um, Start With Why. So you mentioned the why. I came upon Start With Why with Simon Sinek. And there's a part in it, is, and it's a little bit different than even the main section of the, the book, but he goes to MIT. There's a gathering of these titans, these massive multimillionaire entrepreneurs. And the speaker basically asks the audience, um, how many of you have achieved your financial goals? You know, 80% of the room put their hands up. Most of them don't even have to work another day in their life. And he follows it up with how many of you feel like a success? And 80% of this room put their hand back down. And that story, it was like the inception kind of moment, right? It's like that seed, you know, changed everything about the, them. Like that story was just so like it just grabbed me. Right. And we all know that money doesn't equate with happiness and stuff like that, but we still pursue it. And I'm like, well, we're actually looking at how can we achieve the feeling of success in every, in every area of our life. And so that's what started the podcast for me. Um, and even the, you know, behind the name success engineering. So 
there's systems, there's frameworks, there's blueprints. That's the engineering part of it that we can build success. But I'm so fascinating talking to people and pulling back the curtain on the appearance of success and going like, you know, where's the times that you felt like you're a complete failure, like totally alone, like an imposter and diving into that. That just fascinates me. It's, it's the why behind what I do. And so that's why I'm, you know, like a hundred, hundred plus episodes in on the podcast. You had me at systems. (laughs) <laughs> Anybody that listens to this knows how much I love me some systems. So I uh, definitely had me as systems. There's one thing that I want to point out, though, that I think that um, you really kind of skirted over that I think you're just accepting as the truth and that I don't really think is the truth. You said, well, everybody knows that money doesn't equate with happiness, but we go after it anyways. <laughs> I don't think most people do know that. I think because you've gone down the personal and professional development rabbit hole and you've talked to well over 100 people that are successful, even though they might not feel like it. You know that intrinsically. I know that intrinsically, but do you really believe from all the research that you've done that most people know that money doesn't equate to happiness? Because I don't believe that's true. Yeah, that's that's actually a really great question. And I would, I would go back to like, you know, Thoreau, where he basically says the mass of men lead, lead lives of quiet desperation. So, so much of our, our life, I would say is just on autopilot, where if we don't really intentionally define what success is for us personally, you just default to the societal norms. And then you get to the, you know, you achieve whatever success that the society puts out for you. And you realize that like, this sucks in some regards. Like you're like, this actually doesn't fulfill me at all, or it doesn't feel like a success, or I don't feel like a successful, you know, creative person or entrepreneur or with my finances or as a parent or husband or whatever, even though outside it looks like, like it. So yes, I would agree. Like if, if we're just kind of on autopilot, that's just what we do. We fall into that rut. It's a, the societal norms. And we're just like, this should work. And then we find out down the road that it doesn't. And then we're like, what do I do now? So I'm curious then if we go back even a little bit further, I love the fact that it was kind of like this. Most people I always find if you're going to distill down all the details, everybody starts a podcast because they've got a rock bottom story. Everybody, at least the ones that are doing it for like the true purpose of wanting to share and learn and help other people through the struggles that they've been through. They all have their rock bottom story, right? They're always the opportunists that say, ooh, the next trend is podcast, right? They're a different category, but those that really do it and are driven by it and are pulled to the microphone to share, they have a rock bottom story. But I wanna go back even further and I'm curious why you decided specifically to get into fitness and nutrition and what your definition of success was back then. Yeah, it's something that I I didn't, you know, I would, I didn't really think about as much at that point. You know, at that point, I wanted to help people. So I'm like, I want to help people. I love sports. And so I was like, let's kind of put them together, right? So then I'm doing the personal training, helping people. And I realized really quickly that, you know, most people that are going to the gyms want to lose weight. And Exercise doesn't really do it. Exercise by itself doesn't really do it. So then I realized like, oh, it's actually mostly about nutrition. Like that's going to be your 80-20 kind of thing. So it's mostly about nutrition. Let me learn about that. And then it's like, it doesn't matter how much I know about, you know, gluconeogenesis and what happens with carbohydrates breaking down in your body. If I can't coach the person in front of me to to actually have three servings of vegetables. So then I was like, let me learn about change psychology and behavioral psychology and actually understand, you know, motivation and how do we how do we navigate actually getting these behaviors to stick in real life. And so I wouldn't even say at that point I had a clear 
definition of success. It's just kind of like, you know, I did that in college, then I came out of college and you're, you're just, just your job, you know what I mean? And you're just kind of figuring stuff out at that point. But it was this iterative process where all of these different components, whether it's the health and fitness side of things, and then layered on to the behavioral change, layered on to, you know, neuroscience and psychology and philosophy, they're just kind of building this thing where now I'm like, oh, this is where I want to go. And this is what I want to want to do in terms of helping people. Yeah. So when it comes to habit formation and all a lot of the other neuroscience and change behavior, we're going to get into a lot of that later because as you probably already know, I'm a giant habit nerd just <laughs> like you are. I think that we have slightly different, uh, you know, uh, messiahs. Mine is James Clear. Yours is BJ Fogg. But we essentially speak the same language, you know, tiny little habits, tiny changes, big results. So I want to get to a lot of the nuts and bolts of that a little bit later. But for now, I want to dig a little bit even deeper into the psychology of this idea of you came out of college, you said, well, I want to help people. I didn't really define success. I think it's a really common trap. And really, it's a trap that's designed this way by society and by the, the way that our economic system is designed. You're supposed to be a cog in a machine. And success is defined as I'm going to earn the most money, or I'm going to get the awards, or I'm going to get the prestige, or I'm going to get the title. And I think that one of the misnomers that a lot of people fall into, myself included, is the idea that, well, I can do all of those things. But as long as I quote, unquote, follow my passion, it's all going to be fine. But following your passion and defining success, I feel are two completely different conversations. And you kind of have to align with both because I followed my passion from the age of eight <laughs> years old until about 35 years old, I lived and breathed film editing. That was my passion. But I hadn't aligned the passion with what is my definition of success. It was what is the definition of success as an editor. Well, it was working on these shows that get these ratings or this many people go to the theater and they make this amount of the box office and you get awards, right? And I'm not going to go too deep into my story again, because many people that listen to the show know it. And I told you um, kind of my rock bottom, you know, realizing I didn't have a definition of success story, which was working on this huge number one show at the time, which was Empire and realizing like, I was putting my kids to bed via FaceTime. Like that was, that was my personal rock bottom story. And people would say, well, you were paying all your bills and you're like, how's that rock bottom? You weren't homeless and you weren't an alcoholic like on the street. It's like, yeah, but for me, emotionally, I was completely and totally empty. So I'm curious if we separate the I'm following with my passion. I want to help people from the success side of things. It's one thing to say, all right, it's not going well and I can't get clients and I'm banging down doors. But when was the moment that you realized even if I were quote unquote successful, this isn't really what I want to pursue. Mm, great question. Yeah. I, I think it was when, you know, so I'm in the fitness world and I'm surrounded by all these fitness entrepreneurs and, you know, we're going to these conventions and stuff like that. And all of them are geeking out about optimizing, you know, squat form and, you know, the perfect kettlebell swing and stuff. And I just sat back and I was like, I don't care. <laughs> like, I just, I don't care about that. And then you have to ask the question, what, what do I care about? And I, I realized at that period, it was while nutrition and exercise is a slice of the pie, it's not the whole thing. And I actually care about the whole thing. Like I care about the person as a whole. And even some of the clients that I would work with as a personal trainer, you know, they, they're buying Porsches in, in cash and have tons and tons of money, but they are stressed out of their mind, traveling all the time, you know, drinking, 
massive quantities of alcohol on the weekend and then they're divorced and their life is awful. And I just looked at that or the other you know clients that I have where they grew their businesses their whole life. They got the perfect thing, right? Their business got bought out by massive company. So they're just the golden handshake, you know, what every entrepreneur dreams of doing. And then they left their health like on the road, you know, 15 years back and they want to take these trips to Europe and they can't climb upstairs, you know, <laughs> like they have a double knee replacement. And, and you're just like, wow, you invested all this time and then you get here and you can't, you can't enjoy the life that you wanted to do uh, or you sacrificed decades to get to a spot that you don't want to be. So I had to step back from and go, what am I really passionate about? And ask those questions and then start to round it out and go like, I care about the whole person. I care about these people that might be successful on one hand. But what about those other areas of your life? And that for me, a lot of a lot of it was just like these little building blocks, you know, like we talked about habits. It's just like taking these little building blocks and going, oh, let me put that here. And then you realize at the end you're building something. But at the start, you're just maybe laying a foundation and you don't see the picture at that point. So going to this idea of laying the foundation, you kind of talked about how you had gone through uh, deciding I want to be an entrepreneur. My wife wasn't working. All of a sudden she's pregnant. Everything's not going well. But there's a part of it that I think is really important is this idea of transitioning through this period of life. You also made a pretty significant move, did you not? Which includes where <laughs> you're living now. So I feel like we kind of buried the lead. This is a big part of your story. So talk to me about this transitional period because I think it's going to be really both inspiring, but um, it's going to be you know really eye-opening for people that are thinking the transition they're trying to make is hard. <laughs> so... To give a, a little further backstory, so I grew up in Papua New Guinea. I spent you born there my whole life. Grew up until I came back to university and went to college in Indiana. My wife grew up in Turkey, and same kind of thing. Born there a whole whole life until going to to college, and then we were in Indiana for you know four years. And from Turkey and Papua New Guinea to Indiana, just, of all the places to meet, Indiana, like what you you couldn't write that story. People wouldn't believe it. Yeah, a lot of cornfields, not a lot of uh, for us personally, right? There's different different folks, but <laughs> we were like, man, we gotta we gotta get out of here. And so when just our whole life, you know, imploded, we're basically like, well, let's just look. You know, my wife's a teacher, so she's like, let's just you know, let me look at jobs overseas, right? So we're looking at these jobs overseas, and we're like, what's the worst that can happen, right? We move. We move overseas. It's awful. And then we come back and then we just find another job. So might as well give it a shot. And then there's the, you know, the road less traveled kind of idea, the, where I, I asked myself the question, if we didn't move overseas and I looked back on my life, would I always like regret it? Even though like I could potentially create, you know, I could create a wonderful life in, in the U S but I was like, would I always be like, what would my life look like if I had actually gone overseas. So we decided to do that. My cousin was a principal at a school in, in Shanghai. And so we moved overseas and it was actually the best, best decision we've ever made. Um, and so we, we love it here as well. And then what that allowed me to do is actually have the freedom and the bandwidth and stuff like that to then start digging in and building, you know, success engineering and going like, what am I passionate about? Who do I want to work with the podcast, you know, all of that. So yeah, there was, there was a big transition there, but it, it paid off. And it even goes back to that, you know, the quote, like what's on the other side of fear. And a lot of times it's nothing, you know, we have so much fear just because it's unknown, but actually the life that we have right now is 10 times better than what we'd have in the States at this, this current this current point. So definitely a good decision for our family. And just to clarify, you are where exactly? 
now now we are in uh, Hangzhou, China, which nobody's probably heard of, but it's a city of 9 million people. So the same as New York City, basically. <laughs> it's two and a half hours away from, from Shanghai. Yeah. So I actually did a, a tour all around China and Southeast Asia for a movie that I worked on years ago. So um, as a total side note, I spent like three, four months immersing myself in learning Mandarin and becoming conversational. I've lost all of it now. I can remember like one phrase, uh, but I've, 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 that is actually one of the, the cities I think I either visited it or was close to it. But um, I, I can relate at least a little bit, having been there for a couple of weeks, what a giant culture shift it is. It's one thing to say, I'm going to go overseas and go to Europe, right? Different languages, different cultures, but it's still that westernized culture. But when you go to a truly Eastern culture, and I was in Beijing and Shanghai and Guangzhou and a couple other like smaller uh, cities as well, and it's just like it's a completely different world. And I can't imagine going through everything that you went through, also dealing with this massive cultural shift. So I would guess, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that some of the things you teach now that are so unique about being not just a, a coach for entrepreneurs, but a coach for entrepreneurs that deal specifically with loneliness, which talk about a niche, I would guess that some of that came from that giant move that you made, did it not? Yeah, I mean, loneliness, you know, some of the things is like the things that we struggle with or overcome in our past are the areas that we can then, you know, help other people with. So when you're in that, international scene, a lot of times there's just a re revolving door of people coming in and coming out of your life. Like I remember in third grade, like my best friend left forever and I've never seen him again since then. And I still remember just crying my eyes out going like this hurts so bad, you know, like your friends that you have and it's, it's becomes a part of your, your life. So on one hand, there's a lot of, a lot of loneliness, a lot of pain associated with that but then there's also strengths that you develop out of it. So when you move to different cultures or even different cities or places or even connecting with people, there's these skills of observation that you have that you can, you know, pick up on the, the, the patterns, pick up on the cultural things um, and actually leverage that to connect with people quite rapidly is one thing. And then also you get this beautiful picture of the world as a whole and you realize that you know, something, there's something beautiful over here. And you're like, I love that about this country or this people group. And what about this? Like, there's something beautiful that these people do. And so often people focus on the differences that we have in between people, but it's like, no, there's so much beauty. There's so much joy. Like, you know, like even kids, right? Like I would say bubbles are the universal joy constant. Like everybody gets happily, every kid, even like adults, right? We pretend not to, but we see bubbles. We're like, that's fantastic. There's these things like joy and, and you'll see these threads throughout it. And you can take these beautiful things that different cultures have to, to actually just create, use that to meld into your definition of success, so to speak. Exactly. Yes. I love all that. And what I would love to dig even deeper into now, talking about all these different origin stories and all the, the different parts of uh, kind of your journey to get where you are now, I've got to say, as soon as I go to the homepage of your website, and I'm going to read it verbatim, let me get it back in front of me. It says, I am Michael Bauman. I help entrepreneurs feel like they are enough and that they are not alone. Whew, that's a bold statement for a business coach. It's one thing to say, I help entrepreneurs find success and triple their revenue or double their client base. And you're just like, I'm going to help you feel like you are enough and you are not alone. Why decide to go after such a bold niche with entrepreneurs? Because it's so needed. And because I have felt it so much in my own personal life, like a lot of times we as entrepreneurs or just people in general, we build these vast empires of accomplishments because we don't feel like we're enough. Like there's just this hole that we have 
And it's an internal problem that we just pour external solutions on and it never actually addresses the internal problem. And it's so important. There's so much emptiness and loneliness behind the appearance of success. So I would say there's different when I, if I'm defining success, I would say there's almost different layers of success. On the, the surface layer, you have the appearance, right? You know, that's what we all know, the social media, you know, the amount of you have in your retirement, the cars you drive, the houses you own, whatever that is. Underneath that, you have the feeling of success and actually going, how, how can I feel like a success? And I feel like they're so interchangeable that sometimes I, I use the word enough or enoughness just as you know, the corollary with, with success. Like, how can I feel enough as a father? How can I feel enough at, with my wealth? Like how much is enough with my wealth, with my finances? Like how much is enough with my physical body or what is, what would success actually feel like for my physical body? I could be on the cover of GQ or Vogue and actually hate my body. So there isn't that correlation between the appearance and then the feeling of success. So in that area, you can take the different areas of life. So physical, you know, spiritual, relational, mental, emotional, um, financial, and you can go, what would actually feel like a success in those areas? And then you can further refine it based on values. You can take the values of freedom and ask that question in every single one of those areas. So what would freedom feel like in terms of my wealth? What would freedom feel like in terms of my body? For some people, that's I summited Everest and other people that's like, I can get up and down off the ground and play with my grandkids. Like that feels like freedom, right? And you can ask that in each of the areas. You can also ask, you know, what is, you know, what would peace or satisfaction or contentment feel like in terms of my body? How can I actually be content with my body? How can I be content with my wealth? You know, and then you can have areas of joy, like what brings you life? What makes you come alive in those different areas and, and passion, or even like, what is beautiful about your body? What is beautiful about money? And you can explore those. You can use those values to just niche down on what the feeling of success would be in each of those areas. But then underneath that, I feel like there's even a, a deeper level. So to feel like a success in those areas, at least on a long term, you have to you have to look at and really dig into your narratives, your stories, your identities, your the mindset that you have, because that dictates how you feel. The stories that you're telling yourself dictate how you feel. That's you know a huge thing for James Clear in Atomic Habits. Like, how can you actually create your identity first and then build habits out of your identity? And then underneath that. I would say there's even, you know, another layer which has to do, you know, as cliche as it sounds, but what, ha what it has to do with um, presence, like actually being here in the moment. I feel like for me, if I push them into subs, that's one of my personal definition of success is how can I shift from going, I was X productive in my day to going like experiencing the day from a degree of presence. I think it's the biggest gift I can be with myself, like actually going present with my emotions and what I'm feeling. It's the biggest gift I can give to my, my, my wife and my kids or any person that I meet. And it's also how I would say I could live life with minimal regrets, knowing that every single moment I tried to be fully there. So those are just the kind of levels of success. And I feel like it's really important to unpack that and really think deeply about it, especially now with COVID just blowing the world up. We have an opportunity to think about those questions and go, like I did, right? When my world was junk, <laughs> like I have an opportunity to rebuild it, but what do I want to build? 
My sincerest apologies for the interruption, but if you're a creative professional who spends long hours at your workstation, not only is the following promo not an interruption, but listening has the potential to change your life. Because working with a topo mat underneath you at a height adjustable workstation is a game changer. Let's learn a little bit more from ErgoDriven co-founder and CEO Kit Perkins, creator of the topo mat. The topo mat is the first anti-fatigue mat designed specifically for standing desks. The real benefit of a standing desk is movement. We found bringing in this cushioned terrain under your feet, your brain just subconsciously engages and you wander around and you get that movement at the standing desk that you need without even having to think about it at all. People will come to me at an event or a panel and they'll say, I got the topo mat because of you. Even when they had a mat, once they used this one, it was a total game changer. We've just heard time and time again that with topo, we've kind of hit the sweet spot that it's the right premium quality materials and a right shape that people are actually getting benefit out of this stuff. You spend more time here than anywhere if you do creative work the way that I do. So I would rather be driving around in a Ferrari than a Ford Pinto. And I feel like this is the Ferrari of the standing mat. One of the things you don't realize is that at a standing desk, your main interface to the world, your body's main interface to the world is the ground. If you're gonna invest in anything at that Ferrari level, it should be what you're standing on. Well, my goal is that for anybody that is a creative professional like myself, that's stuck in front of a computer for inordinate amounts of time of their waking life, they're doing it standing on a topo mat. So uh, you and I, my friend, one edit station at a time are going to change the world. I like it. That's a utopian vision I can get on board with. If you're a creative professional looking for a simple and affordable way to stay active, energetic, and focused while spending long hours at your height adjustable workstation, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the right mat underneath you, which is why I continue to share the Topo Mat as my number one product recommendation. To learn more about the Topo Mat and purchase yours, visit optimizeyourself.me slash topo. That's T-O-P-O. So many things to unpack. So many good things we could dive into. Uh, there's two or three specifically that I do want to kind of really dig deeper, one of which is this idea of identity. Another one is this idea of the word enough and enoughness. I think both of these are really, really important to get into. Um, I am totally on board with this idea of you have to understand your identity before you worry about uh, behaviors, worry about habits and whatnot, going all the way back to the beginning where you said, well, my clients as a trainer, they know they're supposed to have three servings of vegetable, but they never eat them. Why? I gave them the information. I showed them the pamphlet and they had the calories. They know why it's better to have carrots than Oreos, right? We all do. It's not a problem of information. It's a problem of emotions and behavior and habits. And I would like to help anybody that hasn't gone down this rabbit hole yet that's listening or watching to better understand an example. What does it mean to assign an identity to something rather than I just put something on a to-do list or, you know, willpower my way through it? Like, let's talk about a very concrete example about how I can assign an identity to something to change a behavior for the better to move me towards that definition of success. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And there's, a, there's I mean, a world of work that goes on behind it um, because, you know, the, the person that we show up with today is the result of decades of, you know, conditioning, societal conditioning, familial conditioning, you know, trauma, micro and macro uh, trauma that we've had. And so there's a lot to unpack there. I would say the, the easy route to do it, at least to start with is, you know, let's say you're wanting to make a change in terms of, you know, losing weight or getting, you know, more healthy or more fit or, you know, whatever it is, making more money, you know, look at the people that you see that are doing it 
and ask, ask yourself, you know, what, like they view themselves as, you know, a fit person or a healthy person. And so when you're asking that question, almost in proxy, sometimes, sometimes you have to start with something external from you because you don't know where to start with something internal to yourself, but starting with a proxy for yourself and going like, what would they, what would they do? What would they, how would they process the situation? What questions would they ask coming from a place of identity as a fit and healthy person? Because they make different choices. They hang around different people. They choose different food choices. They make different activity choices. Same with business owners. They think differently about the value of their time and where they want to allocate their time and how can they delegate other things to other people. Like there's a total different mindset. And sometimes when you're not at that mindset, initially, you have to look at somebody else and try to start from that point. Then if you're, if you're looking at starting from yourself, you can use your emotions as signposts that actually point to these different, very fundamental values that sometimes you have, whether it's like the things that you get really frustrated about that just like crank you up. A lot of times there's something underneath that that is a deeply held value that you have. That is why the injustice of whatever is going on in relationship to that is winding you up. So you can look at those emotions and kind of unpack it and go, what am I, what do I really value? Like what is winding me up about this? And sometimes it's easier to find, you know, we can talk about the passion side of things too. There, there is that aspect and you can explore that and explore, you know, flow states and where you, you know, really find your enjoyment and lose track of time. That's another avenue to do it. But with emotions, people don't realize that a lot of times emotions are, our bodies are warning system. They're saying like, just like pain. If you put your hand in a fire, it's like your way of saying this hurts. You're hurting yourself. Move out of this situation. Emotions are the same kind of thing. They're, they're saying something is wrong. So they're a warning system or they are basically referring to a fundamental need that we have underneath that, that is going unmet. So you can actually ask when you feel certain emotions, um, you can ask, well, first off, you can see like, where am I feeling this in my body? And you can ask, what are you protecting me from? Is an like a really fascinating question. Like if I, if I'm feeling angry or if I'm feeling, you know, or I have an addictive behavior or whatever it is going like, what are you protecting me, me from? Because if we view the behavior or the emotions as actually a positive thing, there's something underneath that it's trying to keep us safe. And that's the same with not enoughness, right? It's protecting us from this childhood history that we've had, that we've just conditioned ourselves to not feel like enough because we have to perform on ourselves because of some pain that we've had in the past. So when you ask that question, what are you protecting me from? And then you just layer it on top of each other. So you go, you know, maybe it's, you know, what are you protecting me from? And it's like from getting hurt in some way. Okay, great. If I was completely and totally self like safe, what would be even more important than that? And you, you ask yourself, oh, maybe it would be to receive love, right? It's actually to feel like I'm loved. And then you can just keep going down. Like what, if I was completely and totally loved, what would be more important than that? Maybe it's actually to take all of this love that I feel and to give it out to other people. And then you can ask like, you know, if I was totally doing that, what would be more important? And you can, you can go down pretty deep in a very quick period of time to get at some very deep intents and purposes and values that the emotion is what is a trigger or a signpost for. So we typically repress it. We ignore it. We say like, this is not a problem. And then we end up in all these numbing addictive behaviors because we don't know how to handle those. So that's just like a really simple kind of thing, but that can get you very deep 
and very intentional um, quite quickly. Once again, whole lot of amazing stuff to unpack. And what I want to do is I want to try and take this and simplify it and give people an example that I'm going to use for my own life. Just off the all the things you were talking about resonate with me so much and it made me think back to several things. And like you said, there's so many layers in the way that I talk about it in my program is like you're peeling all the layers of the onion until you get to the center, right? So if we're talking about this idea of addictions or behaviors, first of all, years and years of not even being aware of certain behaviors, one of them for me that I've talked about in the past is my propensity to just fill my face with junk food all day long. Like I'm just, if I have one addiction, and I probably have more than one, but probably the unhealthiest one that I've been fighting for years is snacking. I'm not somebody that needs to go out and have four pizzas or drink a, you know, a case of beer or anything like that. But snacking is my nemesis. And for years, it just was one of those things. It was an unconscious behavior. Then I started do doing some of the work that you and I are talking about, and I realized there were certain triggers going to this idea of habits, right? There's always a trigger or a cue that leads to a behavior and then leads to a reward. The trigger for me, and it took years to figure this out because people say, well, the trigger is you're hungry or it's the sugar or whatever it was, but it <laughs> wasn't. The trigger for me was boredom. Mm years and thousands of dollars to figure out that one thing. Anybody <laughs> listening, you just got that one for free because I bet I'm not the only one, but it goes a whole lot deeper than that. But I'm starting at the surface. I was trying to figure out why is it that I need a bowl of M&Ms next to my keyboard all day long? I don't get it. It can't be that hard to replace the M&Ms with carrots or almonds or something else, but I could not creatively work unless I had a never ending. It was like a Mary Poppins bowl. It just never ended. They were just always there all day long. When I was in my 20s, who gives a crap? All of a sudden, I'm getting into my 30s, I'm like, my pants don't fit anymore. I can no longer see any of my muscles, and I'm having a hard time getting off the floor. Hence the whole journey into Ninja Warrior, which is a whole other series of podcasts. The point being that I found this trigger, and when I started to dig deeper into it, well, how can I possibly be bored if I'm doing something that makes me look successful? I was editing high-profile television shows. I think at the time when I started to realize this, the, the image that keeps coming into my mind is when I was working on Glee. Glee had the most amazing snack wall I've ever seen at a job ever, like 10 different kinds of frosted flakes and all the crunchy stuff and all the sweets, like everything. It was like this never ending wall, floor to ceiling of snacks. And I just went crazy. But then I started to think, why am I doing this? Okay, well, it's because I'm bored. Well, why am I bored if I'm working on something that I enjoy? Well, wait a second. Do I enjoy it? Am I really passionate about it or <laughs> is this a signal? Because I didn't used to have this problem when I was in my 20s. Like you were saying, I would constantly get into this flow state. I would work for hours and hours and the world would disappear and I had the opposite problem. I would go hours and sometimes even a day or two without eating. I was so deep into it. I got to the point once where uh, my wife, uh, my girlfriend at the time, she's like, do you realize how much weight you've lost? I'm like, no. And then all of a sudden I was, looked at the scale. I'm like, oh my God, I lost like 15 pounds. I wish I had that problem today, dear Lord. Um, <laughs> but the point was that this behavior had shifted. What I started to realize was that I was losing the, the passionate connection with my work by doing this deep work and it was becoming more of a job. But then I started to dig even deeper going to this idea of identity and the identity in my head or the limiting belief that I had or the script that kept running was you have to love what you do. I'm like, oh, I don't. Who says that? Dug even deeper, peeling more layers of the onion. Oh, that's a, a lesson that has literally been branded and tattooed to the inside of my skull since I was a toddler by my father. 
Mm-hmm. How dare you choose to do something that you're not passionate about that you don't love? So it started with, I'm eating M&Ms all day long and I don't want to gain weight and I want my pants to fit to, why am I doing this to, wow, I'm maybe I'm not as uh, passionate about my job anymore as I thought. Well, why is that important to me? Oh, because of all the things that I've been hearing my entire life. So it was just this whole unraveling. And then I realized that it wasn't necessarily the job I was doing. It was the stories that I was telling, <laughs> right? So I'm doing the same job now on Cobra Kai that I've done on Shooter, that I've done on Empire, that I've done on Glee, that I've done on Burn Notice, that I've done on umpteen million independent films nobody's ever heard of. I've done the exact same thing from the time I wake up to when I go to sleep. I get in front of a computer, I open up a bin, I watch footage, I cut it together. I don't snack all day long working on Cobra Kai. My entire world disappears unless, of course, the puppy needs to go outside. Other than that, if I, unless I get interruptions, I can just get sucked into this world because I feel an emotional connection to the work and the stories that I'm telling. And more importantly, and this goes back to what uh, you were saying with your story, the impact that I'm having on other people. So I want to talk a little bit more about defining success as far as not just what I'm getting myself, but the impact I'm having on others and how that relates to loneliness in your experience and the experience of your clients, because I think all of these things are really intertwined. Absolutely. And I mean, again, there's tons, tons of what you said that's just really, really phenomenal. I appreciate you obviously sharing that story and you've, you've done it you know, on your uh, podcast for quite a while. But um, some of the things that stood out, I want to give a couple, couple just basic tools that people can use to just start, start this process. So he talked about, you know, just the, these layers and there's a tremendous amount of deep work that he had to go through to, to get to that. But where you can start is when you find, like a lot of times we think our behaviors, like you said, you know, just these M&Ms, we think it's just like, oh, it's because I'm, I'm hungry. And it's just like, oh, I found myself eating M&Ms. A lot of times it's the end of a long chain of events and situations and feelings that then bring us up to that point. And so a super great awareness tool is when you find yourself doing a behavior that you don't enjoy, just stop and take a moment and go, what am I thinking about right now? What am I feeling physically in my body? What am I feeling emotionally in my body? Where am I? Who am I with? What time is it? And then you can start to incorporate, you're basically incorporating, like you said, there's an aspect of environment, right? You had a snack wall, literally floor to ceiling. So there's an aspect of environment that's cueing that behavior. But deeper than that, there's these aspects of emotions and feeling these behaviors that are, are driving it. And, you know, also the the avenues of the the people that you're around. And, you know, as you mentioned, am I making a difference? Is it an outward focus or an inward focus? So taking those questions, like, what am I thinking? What am I feeling physically? What am I feeling emotionally? You know, where am I? What's the environment? What are the people? You know, what time it is? And then just backtrack it as far as you need in, in terms of data, going like two hours back, maybe a day back or a couple of days back. And if you do that, even just for a tiny little bit, maybe like a week or something, you'll start to notice these patterns. You're like, whenever I feel like this, I end up doing this behavior that I don't like. Whenever I'm with these people, I end up doing this behavior that I don't like. You know, and you'll notice, you'll start to notice that cue. And that's where you can begin to go, oh, what is really going on here? The other thing that you mentioned is like that, that aspect of just questions. They're just beautiful at taking things from here and just going a little bit deeper. Like what is really going down? And let me not just process this cognitively, but also try to process it 
somatically as well in our body because our body you know keeps the score there's so many things that we hold the trauma we hold the stress and stuff in our body so totally forgot what you asked as an actual question but i wanted to put that in there you were talking something about loneliness so ask it, ask it yeah so essentially what i'm trying to better understand is how loneliness factors into this idea of you know i've got these things on the the surface level and i'm noticing that maybe i don't have the the passion for my work anymore all these things that we've talked about i want to really understand how loneliness factors in and some of the the i guess the practical stories that you've heard from some of your clients if that's an easier way to put it Um, but i want to get a sense of no matter where we are in our career like you said these people that say i never have to make another dollar in my life um, not only do they feel they're not successful but there's a lot of loneliness associated with it. I think it's better to understand that um, specifically for people that do creative work and how that is just kind of part and parcel with the process. Because in order to really do great work, there have to be periods where at least I believe, I'm not saying this is the gospel, my own personal opinion, having been doing this for, you know, 25 years now, is that you can't do great, important, creative work by just picking away at things during the day and you know making sure you answer all your emails and you go out to the the <laughs> mixers afterwards and you make sure you go out nights and weekends like you have to I'm not saying you can't do those things but there are periods of time where you just have to put the blinders on and you just do amazing work that's the only way to get amazingly good at your craft to meet the right people to network whatever it might be you really have to put yourself out there but that requires making sacrifice and I remember for me the first 3 years of my career in LA, I knew nobody outside of the office. No one. I had zero relations outside the office. And I was so intensely lonely, like physical pain, loneliness. Mm-hmm. I'd never experienced anything like it. And then I was fortunate enough to, to meet my wife. I think it was two and a half or three years after I moved out to LA. And that certainly changed things. Um, but I remember how intense that was and how it actually derailed my creativity and my progress. So I'm, I'm curious what stories either you have or you have from uh, your clients, obviously keeping them anonymous, to really help creative people that are listening to understand that loneliness is not something you're doing wrong. It's part of the process. Oh man, you just you just opened the box here. So here we go. We're going to drive dive into a lot of the, the neuroscience behind it. So one thing that you talked about, that all of the research that I'm going to you know talk about right now has to do with the subjective feeling of loneliness as opposed to the objective loneliness. So you can be, you know, trekking through, you know, the Pacific Crest Trail or the Appalachian Mountains or whatever, and be alone for ages of time and not actually feel lonely. You can also be in a party surrounded by people and feel utterly and completely alone or in a marriage, in a relationship, whatever it is, you can feel utterly and completely alone. And all the negative effects of loneliness, the chronic loneliness has to do with subjective loneliness. Um, So with that being said, you talked about actually feeling it as a physical pain, and this is what people don't realize. So basically, loneliness lights up the exact same pain network as physical pain in your brain, which which is crazy to people, right? If I break my leg, I go, this is serious. I have to go to the hospital and get this fixed, right? Because I'm wanting a ton of pain. Pain like narrows our focus down onto something is wrong that we need to change. And we don't realize that about our emotions and about loneliness as well. So loneliness, it lights up the same exact network in your brain. If you bash your you know shin against a table, besides like 
swearing first off. Like the second thing you do is you actually rub your shin. And the reason for that is it makes it not feel as painful. Well, that doesn't make sense because it's the same stimulus. It should feel the same amount of pain. So what's happening? You have two different types of neurons in your, your body. This is, I'm going to do this really quickly. There's myelinated neurons, unmyelinated neurons, you know, myelinated basically insulates it. It travels faster. So sensory, when you rub it, it's a faster neuron and it goes through a spinal gate in your um, spinal column. And then your brain interprets it. So what happens is pain is a slower stimulus. And when you rub it, the sensory nerves get there first and their brain goes, it's not as painful, but the stimulus is the same. So even if physical pain is an interpretation of something in your brain, it's the same with loneliness. And we have the words for it, right? When we say heartache, right? It's the same as stomach ache and headache, right? They broke my heart, right? It's the same as I broke my leg. We have this language that tries to express it because it, it is actually the same thing, but we don't treat it the same. So loneliness, acute loneliness, what it does for us is it actually stimulates us to reconnect with people. So it's realizing there's a fundamental need that we have. And some researchers even argue um, it's more fundamental than food and water because as infants, if we don't have a connection to a primary caregiver, then we won't get food and water and we, we die. So there's this very hardwired aspect in when we are disconnected from a social group or we've all seen the nature documentaries, right? Like the lone zebra that just gets pounced on like a pride of lions, right? That same thing, when you're separated from a social group, you feel the anxiety almost as a physical threat. It's almost like this is really, really bad because you're separated from the safety of a group. And then you have all of this research on it. Um, Harvard did a study called um, Harvard Study of Adult Development, and it's the longest longitudinal study ever done. It basically tracked these people when they're sophomores in college to when they died, some, some of them in their 90s. And insane amount of da data on everything from marriage to relationships to physical health, all this. And they found that actually the quality of your relationships at age 50 is a better predictor of your overall health than your cholesterol levels. And then there's tremendous research around loneliness affecting, like you mentioned, you know, productivity. They did all these studies where basically people that were instigated to feel more lonely or social rejected ended up eating, like you said, M&Ms, but in this case it was cookies. Like they actually did a study. They ate double the amount of cookies after feeling socially rejected as part of this study than people that did it. And so any of those regulatory behaviors, which is what productivity is, how can I regulate my focus into this moment is actually affected by loneliness. So people made poorer decisions, you know, all the research around, like they were doing these difficult math problems and they had, you know, more trouble with it after, you know, being induced into a, like a social rejected state. And so it actually affects you. And that's, that's what I'm wanting to say with this is like, we treat it as like a side effect, right? You have a productivity and then I have my relationships and it's on the side. No, it's the same thing as pain. It's the, it affects productivity. It has massive health effects, chronic health effects, similar to smoking, obesity, and exercise. So it's something that's really, really important. Um, so that's kind of the research behind it. Some of the things that you can actually do to address it. First off, it's important to realize 50% of the loneliness that you feel is genetically predetermined. So you can't control it, but one, you can have compassion with yourself. Some people can move like next door to their family and feel like really, really alone. And other people can move all the way across the world and not feel alone. So some of that's genetics. The rest, you can ad address it with cognitive things, emotional things. I gave you one of those tools, right? Emotionally, you can be like, you know, what are you protecting me from? 
right? So when you ask that question, you can dig deeper into that emotional side. But some of just the simple external things you can do is shifting your focus from internal to external and basically being curious about people. Like every person that you meet, basically, can I be more curious and go, especially around the areas that they might be suffering and having struggle in? Because when we're lonely, everything narrows in onto ourselves. But trying, and it's it's a try, like just like any other practice or skill that you develop, it sucks at first, right? Because it's so unnatural. You have to rewire your brain. But trying to be genuinely curious and try to turn your focus to other people and act like, be like, what are they going through? What are they struggling with? And that, that shifts it. And this is anything from public speaking or whatever. If you have that mindset of going, how can I help? That, that begins to shift it. And I'm not saying it just wipes everything out. I'm saying it begins to shift it. And we can probably get into other things, but I'll, I know I've been talking for a while, so I'll, well, I'll let you talk. First it. of all, you're the guest. So you're allowed to talk as long <laughs> as you like. Uh, it doesn't cost me, you know, a word permitted or I'm not paying extra for it. Um, so I appreciate all of it. But one thing that I want to dig into um, a little bit deeper that I think is so important for people to understand that you just mentioned is this idea of I'm not the only one that's going through this. And as a fellow coach, I'm sure you can relate to this. Um, but I've been coaching uh, and mentoring people now in my industry for years. I've got hundreds of students that I've worked with either one-on-one in small groups, um, another several hundred that have done like self-guided online courses and whatnot. Um, and I pride myself in all of the cool, crazy shit that I teach people, right? Like there's Trello and there's productivity and GTD system. I love all this stuff. Love me some systems, right? But what I've learned throughout this is that when I ask the students after they've gone through the semester, I'm like, what was the favorite thing you learned? What was your favorite module or whatever it is? And I'm expecting them to share something cool. And they all almost say the exact same thing. What I got out of this program was realizing that other people are going through what I'm going through. And that gave me a complete mindset shift that I can do this because I thought it was just me. I think that's another one. That's another area of loneliness that I think affects creative so hard, specifically those that do things in a largely solitary and sedentary nature, which is what editors do and writers. And you feel like, well, I'm in this little tiny, small, dark room. I can't figure any of this out. I can barely make it through the day. I'm exhausted. I'm out of shape. I can't meet the people that I want to. I hate the show that I'm working on and it's boring me all day long. Why does everybody else have this figured out but me? And then you realize, oh, we're all a mess. It's not just me and we're all trying to figure it out. And I think that that has such tremendous value for people. So I'm curious if you've seen something similar with the people you've worked with that finds so much value and just simply realizing it's not just me. I have spent almost 10 years now raving about how much I love my topo mat. And I have finally discovered what I now consider the topo mat of desk chairs, the Core 360. The Core 360, spelled Q-O-R, is designed to keep me constantly moving while seated in an upright and balanced position. To learn more about how it works, let's hear from Core 360 founder, Dr. Turner Osler, about why he created the Core 360 active sitting chair. When you sit badly, you sit badly for many hours a day. And that's really what the problem is. It's very hard to make 
yourself get up and do jumping jacks every half hour. But if you just swap to a chair that requires you to be muscularly engaged in order not to fall off, it's an easy bar to clear. For the procrastinators out there who hear all of the statistics and know how bad sitting is and it's the new smoking and they're thinking, that's something I'll worry about in a few decades, you're gonna feel the effects of having more energy at two o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon that day. And that's the whole point. Your core muscles will be stronger. You'll have less back pain. All of this will make you more available for the rest of the pursuits of your life, your kids, your hobbies, your whatever. For those of us who need to practically live in front of computers to do our best creative work, the Core 360 is going to level up your game. Keep your body moving and keep the creativity flowing. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topo mat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. Absolutely. It's, it's huge. I mean, we all, like you said, we all just go through stuff, especially now we're all just going through stuff. We all have these struggles. And to just, you know, realize that it's like, you're not alone like that. That just goes, I mean, you can't even put into words how far that goes, whether it's somebody who's like supporting you or whether you know there's somebody else that's struggling too. You know, all the research around like vulnerability and Brene Brown, and she talks about it in terms of how we view vulnerability when it's coming from somebody else. We view it as, as strength, right? Like if somebody shares something really personal to you, you're like, wow, like I feel incredibly honored to have that shared for me. Like I feel amazing about that. And I have so much respect for you as a person to share, to share that with me. And I have, it took a ton of courage and a ton of strength to do it. So we perceive it as strength in other people. And now we perceive it as massive weakness in ourselves. <laughs> you know, like I have to be vulnerable and I'm so weak. And like, you know, if I'm going to share this, it just shows how weak I am. Where really there's this dichotomy where that vulnerability actually shows other people. They're typically more connected with you if they're decent people. Right? They're typically more connected with you. They understand you more. You have a better relationship and they have more respect for you. So it's actually the opposite. And I think that's really important. And Another thing too, and this, these, these sound so simple, but it, it is so important even right now with how, how isolated we are. Like think about the people that you actually enjoy spending time with because everybody's busy. See if you can actually schedule something with them. Ideally, like consistently, because there's just that thought in your head just goes, oh, well, I don't want to reach out to them because they're probably busy or they're probably doing something with their, you know, they're with their family or, you know, whatever. Right. And they're probably thinking the same thing about you. He's working on such and such. He's doing whatever. Like, no, you just have to go like, and it can be difficult, but you just have to go look. I would love to hang out. I'd love to get coffee. I'd love to do a call, whatever it is. And just like the important things that we schedule into our calendar, meetings and jobs and our deadlines. It's so important to your overall health and your life. So just find ways. How can I actually just schedule more connection time, which is part of why I share the research. Cause it's like, if you understand the reach, you understand it's important. And so if you understand it's important, you can schedule it into your life. So simple things, but just going, who do I love spending time with? How can I just spend a little bit more time with them? Even if it's video calls, even you know, as tired of them as we are, how can I just connect with them a little bit more? 
Well, along those lines, one of the things that I want to get into even a little bit deeper when it comes to loneliness and uh, building relationships and meeting people and surrounding yourself so you don't feel the sense of loneliness, there was a term that you brought up a little bit earlier. I think it was before we actually started recording officially. And I just loved this concept. You said you need to upgrade your interactions. What does that mean? Because that was brilliant that I might just steal it. <laughs> Absolutely. So upgrade your interactions. It's it's interesting because the last thing that we need right now is something else on our plate. Like we just have so, everybody has so much on their plate that their bandwidth to fit anything else in is, is pretty low. So ideally, right, you, you can, you know, meet with other people and, and it is important, but you can also look at it again from, you know, both of our kind of jam level where you take it to a really small, tiny little step that you can take that just produces more connection in your life. So and that's where like interaction upgrades essentially come comes with. So look at all of the interactions that you're doing. And one, it's an interesting thing to do. Look at, you know, let's say you're spending time on social media. Once you're finished with that, just kind of pay attention. Do I actually feel more connected with anybody after doing that? Maybe yes, and maybe no, right? So maybe you can actually look at it and go, okay, this is not making me feel connected. Or maybe it's the reverse. Like you just feel like your life sucks compared to all of these, you know, influencers lives and it makes you feel worse. So paying attention to that feeling is important, but you can take any of these little upgrades that you do or any of these little interactions that you do and just upgrade them slightly. So what that looks like is let's say you typically leave a like for somebody on social media, right? You just leave this like, what about if you just wrote a little comment in there? You know, a genuine comment saying how much you appreciated it or, you know, whatever value you got from the post that they, they give. So it's just a tiny little upgrade to what you're already doing. And then let's say you you'd normally, you know, write a comment. Maybe you could just message them on social media or message them on your phone or call them on your phone or video call them or meet them in person or go out for coffee, right? So, you know, obviously you can understand that concept of just taking any upgrade that you already have instead of revamping the whole thing, just go, how can I just upgrade this slightly to produce more connection, both for myself and for the people that I'm interacting with? I love this. And I cannot believe it's never occurred to me to apply this to the world of relationships, because this is very similar to all the things that I've learned from everything that I've uh, dug into as far as habit formation. James Clear talks about this a lot. Uh, and there's something that he calls the Goldilocks rule. And it's this idea of if you're trying to achieve any goal, whatever it might be, whether it's fitness or health or relationships or networking or career or otherwise, if you try to do something that's way too hard, well, you're going to just quit because it's too much. If you try to do something that's way too simple or easy, you get bored and you don't want to do it because it doesn't engage you. But if you can find that perfect, quote unquote, just right discomfort zone of doing just a little bit more than you think you're capable of, but you actually are capable of, that to me is the magic zone where everything changes and everything happens. And you're applying that exact principle, but to social media and relationships, which is brilliant. I never thought of that. I've applied it to Ninja Warrior training and nutrition and everything else. But like applying it to social media posts and likes and comments, it's genius. Um, but I think you're you're so right in that so many people, myself included, can get sucked into social media, but they don't think about what is the result of it. 
And for me, I know that essentially social media is twofold. Number one, it's something that's just kind of a necessary evil that I need to do as part of my business to be able to, to educate and inspire people and find clients and answer their questions. So in that sense, I just see it as it's, it's a work duty. Um, but then the other side of it is I see it as a way, I call it like a palate cleanser, where if I'm in the zone for hours and hours and hours, sometimes I just need to go sit on the couch and I just need to mindlessly scroll. But afterwards, what I feel is relaxed. I feel less stressed and anxious because all of the mind running a thousand miles a minute has slowed down because I had this palate cleanser. But what I've also noticed in the past is that when I used it too much, like you said, watching all the influencers and people that have 100,000 followers and I've got 768 followers, like what am I doing wrong? How come they are successful and I'm not successful? Uh, that's a dangerous, slippery slope. So I like the idea that number one, identify how it makes you feel, but then number two, how can you create a more positive interaction by doing something eh, It's just a little bit scarier and more uncomfortable than you might do, but it can probably lead to you know meetings, interactions, advice, mentorship, like so many good things could potentially come from just taking that one little simple step. Absolutely, absolutely. So the, the last area that I would love to go into, and this is gonna go um, far away from all the practical stuff that we're talking about, and this is gonna be very metaphysical and existential, and we're gonna be having a very uh, <laughs> Eastern-like Zen Buddhist conversation. But I think one of the eternal struggles that we have as human beings is actually being able to, number one, define, but number two, accept when it's enough. So talk to me about how we've talked, we've, we've been talking back and forth for a while now about this idea of not enoughness. And it's great to talk about it from a logical perspective, but how do we actually come to accept a point where whether it's money, relationships, accolades, number of students in a program, subscribers on an email list, yearly revenue, how do we actually get to the point where we say, you know what, this is enough and I don't need more? Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a phenomenal question. And, you know, just like you meant, you mentioned, it's, it's something that this is my whole journey. This is something that I think about almost constantly. And I don't have, you know, the, I can give you, you know, answers to that question, but it is something that I wrestle with on a daily, daily basis. The problem is we keep moving the goal line, right? Where we, we get to the point that we're like, man, if we just even look back five years ago and we think if I could reach this point, that would be amazing. But here we are. And then we're looking five years in the future going, if I could just reach that point, that would be amazing. And the thing that I would say on this, there's, there's different ways to approach it. You can approach it from a very macro, very meta level. And then you can also approach it from a very um, presence oriented level as well. Um, and I'll, I'll kind of talk about both. One of the, one of the tools that this is that I, I actually just recently started using this personally, it developed by Dan Sullivan, who's a phenomenal entrepreneur coach. And it's, he calls it the gap and the gain. And he works with all of these people that measure themselves. Like they're just constantly thinking they're not enough. And what he says, and, and it just really stood out to me. He said, you can only measure the distance that you've traveled based on your starting point to where you are now right? We try to measure ourselves based on what we haven't actually accomplished yet. The future, like it's just, it's not real. It doesn't actually exist. And that's what he talks about. You're measuring the gap as opposed to measuring the gain. And I do this all the time. I'll like, I'll have a productive day and get a ton of things done and still feel 
Like I, I didn't do enough. Right. And that's every day. Your, your, your to-do list is infinite. Like it just infinitely stretches in front of you. But I've actually started going, you know, the, the concept of the done list. I actually have a specific habit that I incorporate at the end of my day. And I celebrate every single thing that I did today as opposed to, and even if that's like a, I just overcome some struggle or I just kept going. Maybe I wasn't productive at all, but I just kept going. I will, I will celebrate that now because I have lived for a long time in the, the lack, in the not enoughness. And it just sucks. Like it's, it's a constant thing around you where you're just like, I'm, I'm not enough. But you can also constantly live in celebration. It's, it's just where you, you focus your mind. And the celebration goes, how can I just celebrate more in my life? So this year, like some of my habits and goals that I'm actually working on are celebration habits. Like I am implementing daily celebration habits. I am implementing weekly celebration habits along with my weekly review, right? I look at the things I didn't accomplish. I look at the things I did. I look at what I need to do next week. But now I'm going like, I am celebrating all the things that I did this week. And then in the month I'm looking at it and I'm celebrating it. And so that's actually a huge focus for me this year. So that's a very tangible way to actually shift that feeling. I love it. So give me an example of a celebration. Are we talking like a six pack of brewskis and like swimming in money? Like, well, what does your celebration look like exactly? <laughs> yeah, that, that, that is actually a really good question as well. For, for me, I'm just picturing Scrooge McDuck. <laughs> the celebration for me is actually all internal because it's a, it's an internal feeling. And so, I mean, even in, in, um, tiny habits, BJ Fogg, he talks about, you can develop these celebrations and it, it hardwires because we're fundamentally, we try to avoid pain and we try to move towards pleasure. When we start these new habits, a lot of times we're starting things that maybe did like uncomfortable or they, they have pain associated with them. So you need to ask yourself, how can I actually associate pleasure with these things that might be healthy for me that I know I should be doing? And that releases dopamine in your brain, which hardwires it into your brain. And so it's something like you can change your mood by putting on a different song. Like we can easily change our state by just getting in the zone, like a different, a different song. But for me, I picture the people that I care about just surrounding me, giving me high fives, giving me hugs, being like, you crushed it this week. Like you just did amazing. You crushed it today. Like that affirmation that we want to hear from other people, you can actually just create it in your mind um, to a certain degree, right? You can't just totally, you know, do that. But you can create that feeling of being supported and encouraged. And, or depending on how big the celebration you want to do, you can picture a stadium of people giving you a standing ovation, even for the smallest things. It's fascinating how much your brain can change these states. And so that's for me, when I talk about a celebration habit, it actually isn't an external thing. It's at the end of the day, I'm actually trying to receive that feeling that I get from being celebrated, but I'm celebrating myself internally. And it's the same at the week. I'm like going, you did an incredible job and we're totally fine with us ourselves beating ourselves up every moment and every single day. Like that's just normal, right? You can just be a jerk to yourself all the time. You're like, that's normal, but actually encouraging yourself and telling yourself you did a good job. That seems weird. Well, I want to switch it around. I want to be like, no, I am an incredible encourager of myself and beating myself up. I'm not a huge fan of that dude. So I don't want to, don't want to associate very much with them. So that, that's a, that's a very good question, but for me, it is all internal. 
I love it. There's a, I, to, to kind of wrap all this up in uh, hopefully a nice, neat little bow to, to bring some of these concepts together and uh, you know get us to the conclusion of this, I want to share the first thought that came to my mind as you were talking about all this and how it relates to kind of my own personal journey um, for defining success. And it just came together in the last couple of weeks. So somebody could be listening to this just as it releases. They could be listening to it in five years. So to give you context, at least as of us recording this interview, it's late January and I've just gone through the process of uh, working on, I'm currently working on season five of Cobra Kai, season four just released. And one of the most mind numbing things that I can't even wrap my head around is that Netflix came out with a list of their top shows worldwide, their top TV shows across the entire planet. And there are hundreds of millions of subscribers. And they have a list of the, the shows by season. So it's not just the show, but they say the top 10 individual seasons of shows across the planet, four of the top 10 were Cobra Kai. And number one was Cobra Kai, which means that across the entire planet of people that are consuming entertainment, the show that I spent all day, every day working on is literally 40% of what people are watching. I can't even wrap my head around those numbers. The reason I'm bringing that up, however, has nothing to do with that being my definition of success. That was my old definition of success. The reason I bring this up also comes into this idea of celebration. The amount of emotional fulfillment and contentment I got from that was fleeting. It was like, oh, that's cool. I'm excited about that. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. I got all kinds of people sending me messages and Facebook and emails like, oh, my God, this is so cool. You must be so excited. And my honest got a reaction was like, I just kind of don't care. I care about the show. I care about the people. But the numbers don't mean anything. The celebration of all of the endless hours and work and kind of if we're look this is kind of like a good capper to the story that i told you on your your show as well the celebration for me the memory that i will remember forever is that i got to watch the entire show with my kids and that's a memory they will never forget and the fact that i was present with them And this was something that they enjoyed. And we had the kind of relationship where we can spend all day long just binge watching the show together. That to me was emotional fulfillment and success that I work on something all day, every day, long hours, lots of sitting in front of a computer. But it led to that kind of an interaction and that kind of a family moment. That to me was my new definition of success versus the old definition of success. So that was just it wasn't something I plan on talking about at all. But everything you're saying just resonates with me so much and everything that I've been through just to get here, both on the darker side of things, but now having more a sense of peace of what it is that I do and knowing the impact that it has and being able to, to celebrate it. So I, I love all the stuff that you just shared. Yeah. And that, that, I mean, that really, really wraps it up nicely. The question you have to ask is like, where do you actually live your life? Like so many of us, whether it's the weekend, whether it's the vacation we're living for, and the thing with those things and all the research supports it, they, you, the things that you think will make you incredibly happy don't usually measure up to that. It's still just a lived experience at that point, right? You ask people, you know, what do they do over the weekend, even though they looked forward to it the whole week and they don't remember, right? But it's like you live your life in the week. So you have to go like, even like you talked about, that's an accolade that you received and that's incredible. But it's a, it's a one-time thing. You're living in the moment of creating the work. So if you're not enjoying the creation of the work, you're, that, that thing in the future, whether it comes or not, is not going to outweigh all the rest of your life that is sucking or that you don't enjoy. You're, you, you're living in this week, in this 
in this day. So you have to think, how can I create those moments, those celebrations, the appreciation, the presence in this moment so that I can actually enjoy the accumulation of my life of days rather than, you know, trying to hang it all on one, you know, momentous achievement or whatever that looks like. I'm not sure I have a t-shirt big enough to fit that entire quote, but man, that was good stuff. <laughs> um, I love it. You live your life in, in the week. That's, that's such a great way to put it. Um, I've got one final question that uh, I ask many of my guests, not all of them, but uh, when applicable. Uh, and what I would like to better understand is if I were to put you in a time machine and you traveled back in time to that moment that you discussed in the beginning where you just found out your wife is pregnant and you know that you don't have any money coming in and you're thinking about moving to China of all places, what advice do you give yourself knowing what you know now? That's a, I mean, it's a good, it's a good question. And obviously hindsight is, is 2020. I actually sometimes have my clients do a, a task just like this. I call it a destination postcard. So picture where you are at the destination that you want to have and picture yourself writing a, a, a note, recording a video, whatever it is, as if you were that person. This has to go with that identity as that person. And what would you say to yourself now? And a lot of it comes down to like, it's worth it. You know, the work that you do is incredible. You've made all of this impact on all of these people's lives. You've, you know, created the life that you, you want to live. And, you know, that's incredible. But at the same time, you know, it, it, those, those times just suck. And I can look back on it and I can look at all the things that I learned, but in it, it's just so hard. Um, and there are definitely things that I learned. Like at that point, if I had continued doing the personal training, well, COVID would have happened, you know, right now and personal training stuff just got totally shut down. So I think about that and I go, Oh, interesting. You know, I wonder if like all of that, the stuff that I would have built at that point would have just got shut down, but all of that's just speculation. So, you know, what I would say, you know, back to my, my, myself is, you know, those things like it is, it is worth it. And, you know, you will get through it as cliche as that is. Um, and you do learn some stuff from it and life becomes beautiful again. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, that that's essentially the same thing that I would tell myself is, you know, put in the work, never give up. It's totally worth it. P.S. It's going to suck. Oh, my God, yeah, it's going it to suck. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, that that's kind of, uh, you know, all of my journeys in a nutshell. But, uh, yeah, I think that you put it uh, amazingly succinctly and I absolutely love it. So for anybody that's listening, whether they're a creative like me, they're an entrepreneur and they're thinking, man, this this guy's got a, a smart thing to say or two. And I'd love to learn more or dive even deeper. Where can people find you and best connect with you? Yeah. So I do, I have a podcast, you know, as we mentioned called success engineering. And so I interview, you know, CEOs and actors and neuroscientists to kind of unpack that issue. So definitely check that out. If you're, you know, wanting to actually work with me personally, depending on when this goes, goes live, um, I have limited spots for that, but I do open up a, you know, kind of a mastermind program in mid-March. So that's something that you can, you know, check out as well. I love it. And where can I find all those things? Oh yeah, successengineering.org. It's funny how when you're you on the other out. end of the microphone, you forget the simple things, isn't it? <laughs> you're like, you're oh, so used to being website, the host. <laughs> exactly. Wait, how do people find me? What's my Instagram <laughs> handle? Yeah, uh, I can relate. Uh, well, Michael, this has been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today. I'm glad we were finally able to make this happen. Um, I certainly learned several new things uh, myself. Uh, that's why I always love this process. And also as a, a pro tip very, very quickly, I know that we're going to wrap this up and I'm sure you can attest to this. The best way on the planet 
to network and learn more about the things you want to accomplish and build relationships is to have your own podcast. Yeah, that's the that's the secret <laughs> weapon. You want to meet it people, is. start your own podcast, right? Mm hmm. So yeah, you've uh, you've uh, you've cracked the code on that. Uh, I think that I'm uh, in the process of cracking that too. But yeah, anybody that's wondering, you want to find a way to upgrade your interactions, get yourself a microphone and start talking to people. It's insane. Like it, you know, the six degrees away from Kevin Bacon kind of idea. Like you, it's incredible. At the end of a lot of my podcasts, I'll just ask the guests, hey, you know, who else would you consider a success that wants to be on the show? And I blew my mind to the degrees of separation you are from the industry leaders, like the absolute world leaders just through connections that you have, but you're also offering value. So I agree with that 100%. Podcasting can open a lot of doors for you. Love it. All right. So if you're listening, look up Success Engineering. This guy's got some amazing guests and talks about a, a lot of the, the same or similar topics that we do on this show. So if you enjoy the show, I would say that Michael's is going to be an absolutely wonderful extension of some of the things we talk about here. So on that note, Michael, thank you so much for sharing your insights and your advice here. And I appreciate you uh, being on the mic today. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for squeezing me into your busy schedule. <laughs> Thank you so much for investing both your time and energy listening to today's show. If you were inspired by this conversation, don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app of choice and most importantly, leave a review because that helps move the show to the top of iTunes and get our message out there to those who need it the most. Simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash subscribe to never miss another episode. Lastly, stay safe, healthy, sane, and most importantly, be well. One last thing before I lose you. If you haven't already, I wanna make sure that you subscribe to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'm even gonna send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me newsletter, and I will see you in your inbox.